You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. So if you've got your Bibles, go to Luke chapter 16. We're going to be in the second half of that. We are in a uh, series on the parables. And, and by the way, I forgot to introduce, my name's Ross. If you're visiting, that's, that's who I am, and I'm, I'm glad uh, that you're here. Uh, we've been studying the parables together for the last several weeks, and this is week five, looking at Jesus' teaching, and we said that the parables... Uh, most all the parables Jesus is giving us, teaching us about the kingdom of God, some aspect of the kingdom of God. And so this morning, in the last half of Luke chapter 16, we're talking about hell. That's what we're talking. So if you're visiting, welcome to the Bethel Bible Church today. That was funny, your first hour. Did you hear? Is it second hour, man? It's like, I don't know what the deal is. It's all right, I still like you. I'll still preach to you. Um, All right, here we go. I'm just joking around. All right, right, Luke 16. Hell is nothing to joke about. I think that's the problem. All right, so here we go. Um, Luke 16, this is the second half of Luke. I'm going to start in verse 19. I'm going to read this uh, parable um, that Jesus tells. You know, it may or may not be a parable, actually. He doesn't say it is. Uh, Many take it as a parable. Many... Take it as Jesus telling a, a real story. And so um, we'll keep our ears open for that. Luke records it this way. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple, in fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in the flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that You in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that's been fixed, and in order that those those who would pass from here to you may not be able to go, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Well, that's the word of the Lord this morning. We're struck by the fact that there is a great contrast that has been explained. We're introduced and the parable opens up, the story opens up in verse 19, and you have a a rich man, a guy who seems to be, appearing to be, he's winning at life. He's uh, 
He's got it all together. Everything you would. He's living the, the, is, the, the Israeli dream, if you will. And we talk about the, the text. It, it alerts us to his clothing, purple on white, which at that day would have been the most luxurious, um, elite status, uh, fine clothes, the best dress. We also find out that he um, feasted sumptuously every day. That there was a brilliant spread, literally, laid before him every day. Again, a, a beyond luxury kind of lifestyle. And then his house, although we're not given many details, we are told that he has a gate, which means it's an, it's an estate. It's, it's not simply a house. It's a, it's a property. It's a gated community all in itself. That the man is wealthy and it showed and, and it's what he, how he would have been known. To the, everybody would have known. It's, it's the rich man. That's who he is. That's how he was described. Well, the next two verses, they introduce us to Lazarus. And there could not be a more stark contrast imaginable. These guys come from two entirely different ends of the society. And then the clothes we find from, from about Lazarus, we don't get any details, but we do find he's clothed in, in sores. Clothed in poverty, if you will. Clothed in his shame. When it comes to food, he's starving. He has nothing to eat. He hasn't had anything to eat. He is desperate. And I think we're to assume he has no, no house, no place to lay his head. That's why he gets dropped off at the gate of the rich man, probably implying the dropping off that he's disabled or he's crippled or he's, just, he's too weak to carry himself. The man has nothing. He's destitute. And his needs, though, I mean, look, his needs are meager. It's not as though he's, I mean, just the scraps of food will suffice. I mean, he's not asking for a place at the banquet table. He's not, he's not asking for anything. All he wants, I mean, could, could it be fed from what fell from the man's table, which, which is likely referring to in that day, what they did is they'd have an extra piece of bread or two on the table, and after you finished eating, you'd take the bread. They were like, they were like little finger rags. They used the bread for that, and they'd clean their hands with the bread and then use the bread and clean up the pots, and then they'd throw that bread in the trash. And that's all that man. He wants what's been thrown in the trash. And he's been denied. Listen, compassion would have been a luxury to this man. And insult to injury, the story goes on that tell us about the dogs that lick his sores and He's powerless, evidently, to do anything. He's already unclean, and now he's being defiled by the unclean dogs. And, and it, in fact, we, we don't even, if we're honest, we don't even want to hear that part, do we? I mean, I, I got it. He's got nothing. Why? I, I don't even want to, I, I can't even look there at that. The man has nothing. But here's the thing, if you noticed. He does have one thing that the rich man doesn't have. He has a name. Jesus names him. Jesus knows the man. Lazarus means God is my help. It's, it's a name that implies Lazarus' identity. God is his help. It, it, and it implies a man who has faith. He doesn't have anything else. He has faith. 
Well, in verses 22 and 23, you see that they died. And the comparison content, uh, continues to be recorded even after their death. So they died. Lazarus, Lazarus is escorted by angels to Abraham's side, literally his bosom. It is set in Abraham's lap. The, the place of highest honor. The man died in the company of filthy dogs and is escorted by a company of angels to the highest place of honor. The rich man, he dies. He says he's buried, which means he had a funeral. I'm sure it was luxurious. But the reality is death ends things for the rich man. Death will begin things or bring things to Lazarus. Lazarus probably died. He probably wasn't buried. He probably just thrown on top of a pile that was a burn pile. It's probably what they did with his body. The rich man probably had an elaborate funeral. But at the very moment, the pastor's eulogizing the rich man. You know how rich people can get eulogized. The virtues that come with being rich. We find that his soul is in Hades in torment. His location has certainly changed. The text tells us it's Hades. He's there being tormented. We also find that his perspective has changed. Now he is seeing the world. He's seeing this life after. He's looking up. And as he looks up, he sees Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he knows who Lazarus is. He's not going to get away with the excuse of why I never saw him. I mean, I didn't, I didn't see him laying by my gate. I, this man, I don't know who he is. He knows. He knew all along. The distinction between these two men is not the result, though. We've got to be clear. It's not a result of their station in life. It's directly related to their relationship with God. It has nothing to do, this, this story, this parable, what Jesus is teaching, has nothing to do with poverty being rewarded and riches being punished. That's not it. The distinction is revealed in their names, or, or in lack of names, as the case may be. Um, Lazarus, God is my help. That's his identity. That's his name. That's the banner over his life. But the rich man, with no name, no identity beyond his stuff. The, the God was his, his God was his stuff. His identity was in what he had, what he'd done, riches, power. And they're not the gods you can take with you. And so in death, he's left with nothing. You, you have nothing in your, in your nobody and you're without God. That's the point. A note here quickly about Hades. Let me talk about that for a second. Hades in the New Testament is exactly the same place as Sheol in the Old Testament. If you read in the Old Testament about, hey, you know, be saved from, from going down into the pit of Sheol, that Sheol and Hades, they are the same place. One's the Old Testament, one's the New Testament. And it is a place of both uh, torment and bliss. It's, it's the place of the dead. And the, and the dividing line between the torment and the bliss, it seems, Jesus says there's a great chasm. It's not simply torment, it's torment and bliss. The, the bliss, the paradise... This is Abraham's bosom. This is how it's referred to. The, 
the pit of Sheol, the torment, is what we typically call Hades. And, and make a note here that this is not hell. We're, we're not talking about hell yet. We're, we're not talking about the fires of hell. We're talking about the torment of Hades. Hell will come. Hell is the eternal state. This is the intermediate state. In fact, currently hell's not occupied. Hell was created initially, Matthew 25, 41, for Satan and the angels that fell. It's a place of eternal separation from God. But notice this about death. Notice this about Hades, the intermediate state. It's a place of consciousness, of memory, a, a place of knowledge. The, the rich man is present and he's aware, as is Lazarus. The, the body is asleep awaiting resurrection. The soul is not asleep. It's very much alive and conscious. The, the Bible doesn't teach a soul sleep. It teaches a body sleep. And, and there the body goes to the grave and it awaits resurrection, a bodily resurrection. Our souls, they pass immediately into the life beyond the grave. There's also this parable, this story, and, and the rest of really the Old and the New Testament, eliminates any notion, palatable notion, that you might call annihilation, that, that life just somehow ceases to exist for those that are unrighteous. It might be better dinner conversation to say it that way, but we can't get away from that in the, in the testimony of the Old Testament and New Testament. There is no annihilation. There is life after the grave. As I said, this is the intermediate state. It's not the final state that we see here. It's, it's the state between bodily death and bodily resurrection. And at Jesus' death and resurrection, there appears from the New Testament, there was a change in the intermediate state. Whereas... It all used to be, so here's, here's Hades, there's, there's Abraham's bosom, here's the pit of Sheol. It's, it's, it's these two separate places. It appears that at the death of Jesus, he descends into this underworld, if you will. Ephesians chapter 4, 8, 9, 10, it'll say he ascended, but what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions the earth. In 1 Peter chapter 3, you find out that Jesus goes to Sheol, he goes to Hades, he proclaims the message of victory over death to those that have been imprisoned there. And now he ascends, but he takes with him the paradise. He takes with him the Abraham's bosom. You see Paul write about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, being caught up into the third heaven, but yet he can't talk about it. Jesus will say to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. And so we know that, that believers, when they die, when, when the physical body is laid to rest, the soul goes immediately to be with Jesus in His presence. Philippians 1.23, I desire, Paul says, to depart and be with Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says... We are absent from the body, but present with the Lord. 
But even that, the intermediate state, isn't the blessed hope. It's not the hope we long for. That's life after death. We long for the life after life after death. The day of the resurrection, when our souls are united with glorified bodies fit for eternity in the presence of God. The final state, the eternal state, we find throughout Scripture as well. Daniel chapter 12 reminds us that we all live forever. Forever. Everyone will be resurrected. In fact, the way Daniel says it is, and many of those, uh, he's talking about, hey, Michael will come, the, the, the time people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found, who's found in the, in the, written in the book of life, and many of those who sleep in the dust, their body sleeps in the dust of the earth, shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And then God tells Daniel, but seal this up. This isn't, we're not given the details of this yet. Well, after the resurrection, what we find in Revelation chapter 20 is that there is the resurrection and then there is the judgment. Revelation 20, beginning in verse 11, you have the great white throne. God is seated on it. And then what it says is that... um, John will record, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Then another book was open, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they'd done. Which simply means, if your name is in the book, the book of life, you, your name is, it's like, okay, you know, Ross comes forward, and, and it's looked, is your name in the book of life? Yeah, book of life. Your deeds... Um, well, everything Jesus did counts for you. His story's your story. Welcome to eternity. If your name's not there, we go to the other books, and you're judged by your life, and no one survives that judgment. He goes on and says, And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and they were judged, each of them according to what they'd done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Anyone's name not found in the, written in the book of life, they were thrown into the lake of fire. But for those whose names are in the book of life, the future is glory, eternity, in the presence of God with new bodies and a new heaven and a new earth. Now, I don't think Jesus' primary purpose in this parable, in this story, was to instruct us about the details of the location of Hades, or ultimately Hell, I think what he's doing is he's giving us a picture of life after death and ultimately life after life after death. And it's a grave announcement, if you will, that the here and the now is not all there is. There is more. In fact, the biblical witness begins with eternity past before there were 
you know, watches that kept the time. It, it ends in eternity future when there will be no more watches to keep time. The writer of Ecclesiastes in Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God set eternity in our hearts. In Genesis 2, chapter 7, when, when the man and woman, they're formed with dust, and it says God breathed life into them, the breath of life. It's literally plural, the breath of lives. So whether that means the, the now and the then life he breathes in, or it's a plural in Hebrew, what they call a plural of majesty, which means he bring, breathes his divine life in. Either way, we were created and we will have a life that exists forever. Everyone. John Newton on his deathbed, as he was being attended to, said, I'm still in the land of the living. In the land of the dying, but I shall be in the land of the living soon. It's the right perspective. Well, we go back to the parable and we see, and what we see clearly is that there is a reversal that has taken place. What, what was evidently um, hidden in the temporal is now being revealed in eternity. And it has nothing to do specifically with one man being rich and one man being poor. It has everything to do with where each of their identities are, who, what they were counting on in this life to save them, what they were counting on in this life to define who they were, what they were counting on in this life to define meaning. And amazingly, what we see is that the wealthy man, the rich man, has not been humbled by his new and undoubtedly startling circumstance. And instead, he, you know what? He still calls Abraham his father. And he acknowledges Lazarus, whom he knows. And, and yet, there in that, he has the presence of mind to ask Abraham to order Lazarus to carry out his errands for him. Somehow he believes in the state he's in, for whatever reason, he's still calling the shots. He's still the one that's commanding the servant. The rich man used to be on top. Lazarus was literally on the bottom. Lazarus is now at the top. The rich man's at the bottom, but he's still ordering him around. What's he doing? Clinging to his status? even though it's not there anymore, clinging to his authority, even though it's not there anymore, commanding his way like a big shot, even though he has nothing, not even a name. On the one hand, the, he knows exactly what's happening. He, he's in agony. He knows that. On the other hand, he's absolutely blind to what's happened. Is in complete denial, probably, about it. He still thinks... He's who he was. Still holding on to his old identity, his status, his place, his position. Well, he's denied the, the drop of water, and then he says, well, what about sending a messenger to my family? See, I'd, I think what he's saying is that they need more information. I didn't have all the information. 
but my family, can, could they please get some more information? I mean, if I had the information, maybe I'd have done something different. So will you send uh, Lazarus to tell my family? To which Abraham says, no. They have Moses and the prophets. You see what he doesn't ask for? That might be the most startling thing of all. You know what he doesn't ask for? Never repents. Doesn't ask to get out. Has no desire to be in the presence of God. There's nothing about that in them, in, in his statements. Maybe he doesn't think he's guilty. Maybe he's continuing to shift the blame. One writer says this, hell is, your, hell is just your freely chosen false identity going on forever. Hell is nothing more than what you asked for. Hell is never anything more than what you have asked for. Hell is something you choose. And it even begins now as long as you so choose. Hell is your freely chosen false identity going on forever. Well, he is denied the, the extra information. He says, well, what about a resurrection? Well, if you send Lazarus back and they see a guy who's come from the dead, that'll be impressive. I mean, that ought to play on their emotions. That, I mean... If he goes and he, I mean, I don't know, maybe, and, and then there's, there's like some lights and some techno stuff. I mean, make it really splashy. They'll repent then. Abraham says, no, they won't. They will not. Those who are committed to being their own gods, seeking out their own gods, creating their own identities, will not be open even if a man rises from the dead. In fact, there's a man, Lazarus, in John 11, different Lazarus as far as I can tell, friend of Jesus who dies. Jesus weeps, calls him out of the tomb. He, he's resurrected, he's resuscitated anyways. I mean, poor Lazarus. He's like, why did you bring me back? Uh, people didn't believe. Oh, if you believed, you know what the others wanted to do? They wanted to kill him again and put him back in the grave. Acts chapter 17 says this, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in accordance to righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. It goes on to say when they heard of the resurrection, some mocked him. Paul, as he speaks. See, Jesus has been raised from the dead according to Scriptures. And if we won't believe the one that God raised from the dead, there is no hope. There is no hope. If you will not believe in the one whom God raised from the dead according to the Scriptures, there is no hope. And if there is no hope, what happens is you die, you pass into Hades, the, the realm of the unrighteous, and you await judgment. That's the reality. So 
what Jesus is saying. Now, I've got a couple of minutes and I want to lay out a couple of principles that I think we can take away from this. One is this. Sin, sin is more than just the bad stuff we do. It's not less than that, but it is more than that. The Bible's word about sin is much more. Listen, so sin brings death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin is also, we find out, the absence of faith in God. In Romans 14.23, a couple chapters later over that, Paul will say this, for whatever does not proceed from faith, whatever in my life does not come from faith, do you know what he says it is? That's sin. One definition of sin, that's the clearest definition we have in the Bible of sin. Anything that does not come from faith in our life is sin. Well, that's worse than I thought. Jeremiah chapter 2, we find sin is seeking life apart from God. But my people, God says, announces through Jeremiah, my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. They've gone after something else. He says this, Be appalled, O heavens, at this be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. Be shocked, he says. Why? For my people have committed two evils. One, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and... They've hewed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. They're seeking their identity in themselves and the things they can... They've forsaken me. That's evil. Sir and Kierkegaard says it this way, sin is building your identity on anything other than God. I think that's very... Biblical statement. If you make your wealth, your identity, your, then that's all you are. And when that gets taken away, you're nothing. You have nothing. If you build your identity on anything other than God, to get affirmation from something, to be somebody, it's your self-salvation strategy. If that goes wrong, if you lose that, you end up with nothing. Not just discouragement, not just depression, not just disappointed. You experience an identity implosion. You, got, you have nothing. That's why the man's not named. Remember Rocky Balboa? Great, maybe one of the top five movies ever made. Sylvester Stallone. Okay. Rocky Balboa. All right, he's fighting Apollo Creed, and he says to Adrian, you know, he says, I just want to go the distance. You know, he just wants to get in the ring and go the distance. Adrian's like, why? You know what he says? So then I'll know I'm not a bum. Then I'll know I am somebody. So boxing was what he was talking about, self-justification. If I can't do well there, then, I'll, then I'm a bum. I mean, what's your, everybody, listen, what's your self-justification? The truth is, 
because of sin has permeated every bit of our lives. There's nothing in our life, nothing about us unstained from sin. Our hearts, our minds, everything we were created to be has been skewed because of sin. And because of that, the reality is every single one of us are drawn to push into, to reach out for, to go searching for an identity, for a meaning, for a significance apart from God. What's yours? Is it something you do, something you achieve, some relationship? Something when you say, I have to have, if I just had this, I'd know I wasn't a bum. The New Testament calls us to say, hey, look, you, that's not who you are. God defines who we are. He defines it because he sent his son to live a life we couldn't live to take on everything we deserve. All our shame, all our sin, all of it. He took our place. He gave up everything so that we could have it all. And if your identity isn't anything else, that anything else doesn't last. And when it goes away or it's threatened, you're left with nothing. So you're building cisterns for yourself that don't hold water. Victor Frankl, Jewish psychotherapist who survived the Holocaust, um, wrote in a man's search for meaning. There were a lot of things. That's probably his most famous. And he was struck by the fact that all these people, I mean, they'd lost everything when they go into the concentration camp, but some survived and some didn't. And what he realized is it depended, everything depended on where your meaning was. If your meaning and your hope in life was in something that the death camp could take away, then you had nothing. You gave up, you curled up, you died, or you made an ally with the enemy, or you, did, you, you lost yourself. He said, though, there were, there were prisoners. There were those that stayed strong, they stayed courageous, they stayed brave. They, they began helping others around them. Because some people went into the death camps and basically went away, and some people lost themselves, other remained themselves because what they were counting on in life and what they were grounded in couldn't be taken away by a death camp. I mean, if your meaning is something that can be taken away by a death camp, you'll be left with nothing. You'll be left without a self. So, well, I live for my family. Well, that's great. If that is your meaning in life, that's your identity, if that gets taken away, you're nothing. Maybe it's your political cause. Maybe it's your status. Maybe it's your career. All these are fine things. Maybe it's making money. Maybe it's sex or romance or, or, or a spouse. I mean, whatever you live, if a death camp can take it away, you're left with nothing. You're just living for yourself. If there's nothing higher than you, more powerful than you, more eternal, you'll be left without anything. If you live for God, understanding who you are in Him, your meaning is defined by the one that created you. Nothing can take that away. 
Well, the last thing I'll say, and I'm, I am out of time, but I would say this, you can't fully understand God's love until you understand hell. And what I mean by that is while still most professing Christians in the United States, when polled by Barna, say they don't believe in hell or Satan, and nobody in Scripture talks about hell more than Jesus. C.S. Lewis said, man, there's no doctrine I'd rather get rid of than, than hell. But he says it has the full support of Scripture and especially our Lord's own words. It's always been held by Christendom and has the support of sound reason. And at the end of the day, Lewis will go on and say, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those God will turn around and say to them, thy will be done. If you don't want to have a relationship with God, Lewis will say, you'll get your wish. Your, your identity that you're building, the meaning of your life, there is a sense in which hell is the, is the eternal extension of that. Well, at the end of the miracle, at the end of the parable, he wants a resurrection. That'll do it. That'll, that'll show him. That'll put the fear of God in them. But Abraham says, no. They have Moses and the prophets. And the reason he appeals to Scripture is because if you don't know why the one is resurrected, if you do not know why Jesus was crucified, buried, and raised from the dead, then you'll ever, never understand what you need to know to have a heart change. If you don't know why he went to the cross and died and rose again, you'll never understand what you need to know to change it. You'll never understand what you need to know for a heart that gets pulled away from all these other things you're pursuing and embrace the Son of God. Well, the prophets Isaiah... Oh, to paraphrase, to put some things together, Isaiah 52 and 53, it was the Lord's will to crush him, and we looked upon him, and we were appalled. He was disfigured beyond human appearance, and his form was marred beyond human likeness. The Lord made him a guilt offering, but the result of his suffering, he shall see and be satisfied. Jesus comes and says, listen, I want you to know how much I love you. I have given up everything. I have endured hell so that you don't have to. That's why Jesus will say on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So you don't have to know being forsaken. He suffered hell, separation from God, agony, isolation, consuming fire of sin and guilt and shame suffered God's wrath for you. You know how much I love you, Jesus says? Look at the suffering I endured for you. When you get a hold of that, when you realize the love of God through His Son for you, 
and that that's your identity, that you're named and known forever. That has the power to change your heart. Not only that, you have nothing left to fear, not even death itself. Jesus took death, not just physical death, he took eternal death, and we don't have to be afraid of it anymore. I'll close with this. Donald Gray Barnhouse, great preacher of the last generation in Philadelphia, his wife had just died, and he was taking his children to their mother's funeral. And on the way, they were driving, and a, and a big truck came by the other way, and the way the sun was shining, there was the truck, and then there was this huge shadow that, that came out, the truck shadow came out into the other lane. And so as the truck went by, the car continued to drive, and the car drove right through the, the shadow. And then he turned to his kids, and he says, Hey, did you see that truck? He says, Would you rather be run over by the truck or by the shadow of the truck. His youngest child said, I'd rather be run over by the shadow of the truck. Then he said, okay. Well, I want you to realize something, that this is going to be all right. It's going to be all right. You see, Jesus was hit by the truck. So mommy just has to go through the shadow. Jesus is run over by death, so your mom... All she has to go through is the shadow, and it'll be okay. That's the good news of hell. You don't know the love, the depth of God's love for you until you understand the doctrine of what Jesus suffered in your stead so that you don't have to. And when you know that and who you are and what he died for, that's the thing to build an identity on. That's the thing to take into eternity. So if you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this word.